Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest on this episode is Amy Shah, a physician who trained at Cornell, Columbia and Harvard. Amy specialises in nutrition and the mind-body connection that leads to hunger. Her new book on that subject is called I'm So Effing Hungry. She joined Hannah McInnes earlier this year to tell us more. So can we start with your title? It's very grabby, very catching. Um, I'm so effing hungry. I'm wondering why you wanted to draw people in with a title like that. Hannah, one of the things I realized over the last few years of looking at the research is that we are both hungry and we're sad. And really, it's because our gut bacteria are hungry and sad. And I think people don't usually make that connection. They think they're craving and Wanting to eat all the time has nothing to do with mood, that food does not equal mood. And so the whole point of this book was to say, hey, we have created a monster in our world today, and we can turn this around through science, and we can be happier, more satisfied, and in the end, live longer because we're not as inflamed. Who's created the monster? I don't want to say that there's any one person, but capitalism, the companies that create foods that are addictive, it's not our fault, really. It's like our biology is wired to want to eat these foods, do these activities. Uh, So it's not just food. It's like video games, social media, gambling, online, um, you know, things that capture our dopamine pathway and keep us craving so people think, oh, why, why don't I have any self-control? Why am I always craving the wrong thing? And my answer to that is, it's not really your fault. We live in a society that has created, that has understood the dopamine pathway and taken advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for you to understand that pathway so you can take advantage of it. I want to come more to, to that. Um when you're writing this, when you were when you were writing and you sit down, do you have a particular reader or demographic, men, women, age in mind? Or is this for anyone and everyone living in this world today with the monster that we've created? It's honestly for everyone. You know, I did think of women in particular when I was writing this, and I have a daughter who's a teen, and I thought to myself, Wow, I we need to educate our moms and our dads so that we can teach the next generation how to eat so that they're more even, how to eat for mood, how to eat for health, and not fall into the trap. It's only been really 80 years since all of this modernization has rapidly changed our food supply. And I think that it gets worse and worse, you know, our generation and then the next generation. So uh Teenagers at this point are eating 80% ultra processed foods. And my argument in the book is that it's not really their fault. It's because they're following, you know, they're kind of just going with what their body is telling them. And we need to teach students um, so that they can pass down this information to the next generation. It's something that we should all be learning from. It's the new science. But you and you, but you personally, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about your journey to where you've got to and why sure. you've written this book and why you're on such an enthusiastic mission to to change the world and to change society in this way. Absolutely. So 
I came to the U.S. when I was five years old with my parents um, from India. And shortly after living in the U.S., uh, probably two years or so, we got the devastating news. Um, My dad, my grandmother, and every one of our family members that had come to the U.S. was all diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Now, at the time, this was a death sentence because there are so many family members that we'd had, including my grandfather, who didn't even make it past the age of 60 because of the complications from diabetes. And they knew they had to eat less sugar, but they really knew nothing about how to control cravings, how to choose the right foods. So I really went on a mission to learn more about nutrition, how food affects the body. I went to nutrition school at Cornell and then wanted to learn more about it. So I went to medical school and I really wanted to come back to help families like my own learn more about food and about whether you feel that you're a lone voice in this. Doctors seem to, you say, and it often seems to be the case, be very um, unaware of or, or seem to have very little education in terms of nutrition. And it seems so strange, more and more voices like yours calling out more of us understanding just how essential nutrition is to our health, as you say, to our mental health, our physical health. Why is Western medicine still so slow to catch up on just how important these things are, the microbiome and even the diet? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's hard to figure out one reason. I think we're on a train that's turning around a little bit. So for example, the younger medical students in the US and the UK are getting much more education and uh, about nutrition. I think that the interests, you know, corporate interests uh, were pushing a different agenda, but I think that things are changing and there are many, many new voices, including my own, um, saying that, hey, we should be taking a food first approach. It's the way out of this mess. And I think um, that if we really demand it as a population, you read this book and you say to um, that this is not a diet book. And you're very keen to stress, we've talked about some of the enemies and we'll talk about more of them. And we'll certainly talk about more about processed foods and and food companies and and the way society gears us in the wrong way towards the way we eat. But you're very keen to stress um, quite often in the book, this is not a diet book. And diets are what you call them hijackers of our brain and our our hunger. So so why... um, why are you so keen to stress what this is not? Because if you think about it, dieting uses the old um, technique of white knuckling it, meaning you um, sit down at a dinner and diets tell you that you are not supposed to eat anything that's served, you know, not that bread, not the appetizer, not the dessert. And, you know, white knuckling, meaning like using willpower alone, because it's not just about willpower. We can't just use willpower to get our way, you know, get ourselves happy and healthy and, uh, you know, more successful. Uh, we have to change our habits. And I argue we have to change our food. So tell us what is what you describe as the hunger puzzle. Yeah, you know, we we live in a world that 
has really inundated us with messages of, of what food should be. We live in a world where we can't use our intuition anymore because there are messages. You might say, do I really want to eat a chocolate cake? Or is it because, you know, my dopamine pathway has been set and uh, now I crave chocolate cake every time I get stressed. Um, so the hunger, you have to think of hunger as not only like a physiological need, but sometimes a psychological need and sometimes an emotional need. How do you distinguish between the two? You talk about later in the book. How do you distinguish between real genuine hunger and an emotional craving or um, just something that, yes, that is not a real physical hunger? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have a trick in the book. And before I get into that trick, I wanted to tell you hunger and cravings and appetite are three different things. Yeah. They occur in different parts of the brain. Actually, they're not from the same areas. Hunger is a true need for nutrients, our physiological need for nutrients. Craving, on the other hand, is our need for pleasure. And it, it spans food, but it also spans so many other places. Like I mentioned, social media gambling, porn addiction. I mean, there's so many, uh, alcohol is a perfect example of the dopamine pathway. So cravings is part of the dopamine pathway, which is really concerned more with pleasure and the seeking of pleasure than it is with giving you nutrients. And then appetite is really the overall interest in food. So what I mean is, when we are sick, if you have an animal, you know this to be true. This is so clear. When they're sick, the animal kind of lays around and doesn't want to eat anything. The hungers and, and cravings are really, really low during the time of illness. That's when your appetite is very low. And appetite can be very high based on certain activities or hormonal changes like or sleep, or going through menopause, or um, it can change, kind of turn up the volume on both hunger and cravings. You do talk about the ways in which we can regulate the um, various things that affect uh, our hunger and our cravings. So hormones and the dopamine. I wonder if you could. Um, it's you know the the book is so useful, such practical advice. You never feel like you are going to have to struggle for the rest of your life. There's the, there are very easy things and ways in which we can hack our system to do those things. Yeah, one of the things, and we talked about this before we started, is sunlight. Now, it doesn't need to be bright and sunny. I know a lot of you are in a place where it's very gray. It just needs to be natural light. Natural light goes into your retina and it activates a part of your brain um, that releases a hormone that actually makes you feel more satisfied during the day. It makes you have better choices. So it's without a doubt that, you know, anybody in any weather can go for a walk uh, for 20 minutes and get some natural light. So the movement and the um, light input both help with uh, regulating both your hunger and also dampening those cravings for unhealthy foods. Uh, so those are some easy things that you can do. I talk about in the book, like lots of hunger hacks and craving crushers that you can do, like walnuts is a really good hunger hack because they light up a part of the brain that actually is involved with being um, more satisfied. So people who ate 48 grams of walnuts for five days straight, they were shown pictures of very enticing foods and uh, the 
brain activity was much lower in the dopamine areas than someone who did not have the walnuts for five days straight. So things like that, not that it will, these are little things on your journey that while you're changing your diet, while you're exercising, while you're improving your sleep, while you're doing all the things you can start to do to make changes right away. And um, you had asked me about cravings and hunger. And one of the tips I give in the book is to start to differentiate every time you want something. Differentiate, is this a craving or am I truly looking for nutrients? Meaning that if it's right after lunch, you've had a good meal and, or for you right now, it's right after dinner, you've had a great meal. And then all of a sudden you want that glass of wine or you want that chocolate bar, um, you know, and the question you ask yourself is, am I actually looking for nutrients or am I just wanting something to light up that dopamine pathway to give me a explosion of dopamine that I am craving? And one of the best ways to help you differentiate is to think, if I had a bowl of vegetables right now, would I want to eat them? Or would I say, no, thank you. It's actually just the wine I want or the, you know, the sugary snack that I want. Uh, Because if that's the case, then you're probably not necessarily hungry. Um, You're more looking for a dopamine hit. And a dopamine hit can be very um, enticing. And you can get it in different ways. And I talk about in the book how to raise your levels of dopamine naturally so that you're not always looking for that dopamine hit. Perhaps you could, I was going to move on, but actually perhaps you could mention some of those ways, really interesting, useful ways of doing that. Yeah, there are foods um, that have the amino acid tyrosine that actually is a precursor to dopamine. So you can raise your levels of baseline dopamine so that you're not always looking for other ways to get it. So high protein foods, dairy foods, like um, yogurts, cottage cheese, eggs, nuts, berries, all these things that, you know, kind of comprise a healthy breakfast are ways that we can boost up our dopamine levels. Cherries, for example, are one of the weird ones that you might not think of that raise dopamine levels. So I give a list of dopamine producing or dopamine supporting, I guess, foods that you could start eating more of, especially in the beginning of the day, because dopamine is a close cousin of adrenaline. And so in the beginning of the day, you want that, you know, go, go, go chemical to make you feel more alert and awake and um, keep you going. So that is having a high dopamine breakfast is something that you can easily do to hack yourself into not having such bad cravings for sweetened and junk food and other bad things that raise dopamine levels. It's really interesting. Um, those are good ways of doing it, cherries, etc. But uh, the modern food industry have got very canny at the dopamine manipulation. Yes, just manipulating so much of our hunger, and as you say, hijacking it, and um, hijacking our brains. You say, and you know, you give some incredibly eye-opening examples of just the length that the. Uh, fast food companies and various other places go to get people addicted to their food. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about 
just what they've done in order to hijack our, our taste buds. For example, the bliss point. Yeah. So when you create food in nature um, or when na- you eat natural foods, they create a burst of dopamine often, especially like fruits and things that are brightly colored and very attractive in nature. And the point is to make you remember that experience, make you remember how to get to that food again. Um, There's various theories about why our body would want to create dopamine. It's mostly that it's good for survival. Our body remembers um, the situation where we ate that big, juicy, ripe fruit, you know. So what they've done is they put, there are labs set up all around the world where you know, volunteers are brought in and they're connected to electrodes and they've given food, given them foods. And they're trying to see what foods can create the biggest explosion of dopamine in your brain. These are things that are well beyond what a fruit tree could ever do for us. Um, these are flavors that create the perfect combination of sweet, salty, crunchy, and light up the areas of our dopamine, but then don't release the hormones that tell us when to stop. So for example, the goal would be if you were making the ideal um, snack food, would be to create a food that gave you the biggest dopamine explosion because the flavors had, you know, basically a bliss point or a perfect texture, flavor profile that had the biggest explosion of dopamine, but not trigger it so much that our leptin, our GLP-1, our satiation hormones would be released. So that's why you can eat an entire bag of some of these foods without ever actually feeling full. We should talk about a slightly more positive thing here, because obviously I should say, or or perhaps you you could emphasise that the reason it's good to draw out these examples is because in order to deal with cravings, recognising what they're doing to manipulate us will help people, I assume, and you hope, to avoid these places and avoid these foods. Yeah, if you think about it, We talk a lot about alcohol or gambling or how to, you know, control those cravings or how to stop the addiction. But we hardly ever talk to people about how to control your cravings for food and how to manage yourself around these things that are as addicting, if not more. They're like drug-like substances, especially when you get these hyper-engineered foods. Yeah. So tell us, a lot of people I know are going to ask about this, and you are very excited about psychobiotics. We are more and more being told about our microbiome and just the extraordinary importance of our gut bacteria, the microbes that live in our gut, how they affect our health, our mental health, our our brains, brain-gut axis. So I, I want to talk about this for a bit. Perhaps you could start by saying why they are so incredibly important, the sort of science of what they're doing there and why they're so important. And then we can talk about the ways that we can, you know, love them and nourish them and do the best by them. And that's so, I mean, it's mind blowing. Okay. You can take the gut bacteria from a schizophrenic person 
and compare it to someone who doesn't have schizophrenia, which is a severe mental health disorder, and distinguish them just by looking at their gut bacteria alone because their gut bacteria look different. Then in a second part of this experiment, they took the microbiome from the schizophrenic patient and the microbiome from non-schizophrenic patients, and they put it into mice who didn't have any um, microbiome of their own. And they found that just by transferring the gut bacteria, they were able to recreate mental health disease in these animals, meaning the animals that got the gut bacteria from schizophrenic patients started to develop uh, behaviors that are schizophrenic. Um, And they were able to say, hey, not only are we seeing a distinct gut bacterial change in in these people, we're able to show that just by transplanting their gut bacteria, we could change the entire mental state of the animal. Um, And so that's how psychobiotics started to become really interesting. So then they did the experiment with depression. They found you could transplant depression from one animal to another. And then they found out that you could actually cure depression. You can cure autism. You can cure, I mean, these animal models became so enticing. You could really change autism, dementia, uh, depression, schizophrenia. So then they started to say, well, how do we use this in our clinical setting to help people with depression, anxiety, autism, dementia? Um, Can we give them bacteria without actually transplanting um, one gut bacteria to another? Can we do something to actually change the gut bacteria in someone's gut so that they can cure themselves from depression or disease? And what we found out is that there is a lot of potential in this world of psychobiotics. We are very close. We still don't have the exact, you know, pill-based probiotic to cure all these things, but we are very close. But what we do know, and the reason I wrote the book, is the number one way you can change your gut bacteria is through diet. Dietary change is a surefire way, even better than probiotics, to change your gut bacterial makeup into one that is more favorable. So that's what's exciting. It is exciting. And what's exciting is the agency that we have. Because you say we can manipulate our microbes, rebuild a healthy microbiome in just a few days. I mean, obviously, we can't just click our fingers. But, um, you know, you give such helpful, again, practical, step-by-step and not difficult to follow advice. And the thing is, it's not about, and I think this really appeals, it's not about what we shouldn't have so much as what we should have. And yes. if you could just tell us some of the ways in which in a very small amount of time we can uh, replenish and help our microbiome. And it's more than just probiotics that you buy off the shelf. In fact, it's much more than that. Absolutely. I mean, it would be the study that showed that three days is all you need is a really a landmark study because what they did is they said, okay, we know that dietary changes change the microbiome. Um, Let's give it two weeks, you know, and we start to see change these people. First, they put them on a very highly processed, you know, typical industrialized countries, like, you know, ultra processed diet. And then they had them on that for two weeks. And then for the next two weeks, they changed their diet rapidly into one that was whole food, plant-focused, 
unprocessed, uh, low sugar to see like, okay, what about if, what if we change our diet very rapidly? How quickly can we start to see, uh, you know, uh, recovery? And they found out that in just three days, the microbiome looked markedly different than it did after having two weeks of the processed junk food. And so it was really encouraging because we think, oh, wow, this, we can start to change our diet, start to make these, um, you know, interventions in our life. And we can actually see change in a very short period of time. What are the key recommendations from you in terms of what we can do to change our diet? Yeah, so in the book, I talk about six different foods that you should be including every day. And those foods include fiber. Number one is fiber because um, our gut bacteria are starving. 98% of people in the um, industrialized world do not get enough fiber. And so what's happening is that these gut bacteria are starving to death because they're not getting the food that they need. Number two is polyphenols. Polyphenols are brightly colored vegetables and fruits, but it's also your green tea, your coffee, your dark chocolate. Um, These things are food for your gut bacteria as well. Then we have omega-3 fatty acid foods. So things like salmon and fatty fish, or if you're vegan, it's algae oil, um, flaxseed, walnuts. These things raise your omega-3 levels, which release craving kind of crushing hormones, as well as improving your gut health. Then we have amino acid rich foods, which are high protein foods. This not only helps with your cravings, but your gut health. Um, then we have dopamine supporting foods, which again, I was telling you about that will help your cravings, but also help your gut bacteria produce more dopamine and make them happier per se. And the last sixth food is glucosinolates. Glucosinolates are your broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. They have these special sulfur compounds that are so beneficial for your gut bacteria and also for your brain. So would you say that buying off the shelf probiotics is something that everybody should do? Or do you think that it's better to do it with these with these foods that you recommend? Yeah, I definitely think food first approach when it comes to probiotics, because here's the thing. If you throw seeds from a helicopter into a barren field and your seeds are meant to be for a winter climate, but you're throwing it into a barren, hot desert climate, those seeds are just a waste, right? They're not going to take, there's not going to be seedlings. That's what probiotics are. It's like a shot in the dark. Like you have a very unique uh, bacterial, viral, and uh, parasitic makeup in your microbiome. And you need to get more of the seedlings that fit into that environment. Now, so that's why I talk more about fiber and eating polyphenols and prebiotic foods, because you want to nurture your own garden. You have seedlings there that can be nurtured. And um, when you're adding probiotics, you're hoping that you're getting the right ones But what we realize is that probiotic foods have this unique matrix and ability to seed into our intestines as opposed to taking pills. So in all those, for all those reasons, I still think that we should take a food first approach when it comes to this. Do you think that it is harder for vegans to get the right probiotics um, and for that, for, uh, there's so much, obviously, positive talk about a plant-based diet. 
But then a lot of the things you talk about, um, the fish oils and, for example, yogurts, and a lot of the probiotics come from non-plant-based foods. So what do you think about a plant-based diet? Is it harder to get the microbiome right with a plant-based diet? Well, you know, plant-based diets can range from extremely healthy with full of fermented foods to extremely processed. Um, And so I don't think that there's one right answer, but I do think that some people think that going vegan is the answer to all of their problems. And it's not, it's in fact, like you alluded to in ways, some ways it's more difficult. Um, It's, I think what we want is more plants in a plant-based diet, because sometimes people go plant-based and they're just having, you know, the alternative meats and the alternative snacks. And what we want is if you're going plant-based, you want to have more vegetables with fiber, more polyphenols, more fermented foods. Um, That's the right way to do it. Yeah. There's so much to ask you. We could be here for many, many hours, but I I would love to hear your um, expression, unlearned eating. So people have heard of intuitive eating where you um, feel your body supposedly and you and you react to the signs your body is giving you. But you have something different that you call unlearned eating. And I wonder if you could tell us about how to how to practice unlearned eating and why it's important that we do. Yeah. Uh, intuitive eating in its actual real true form is absolutely beneficial. You know, learning your own body's signals, taking away a lot of the external world signals. But when a lot of us hear, like when I used to hear about intuitive eating, what I thought was, oh, if I'm feeling like having something unhealthy right now, that's my body telling me I need it. And I should go and get it, you know, and we live in this world, as we talked about, that is hijacked. Uh, Our brains are hijacked by these companies who know how to trigger our cravings. If you're craving Instagram, if you're craving, you know, gambling, if you're craving alcohol, if you're craving sugary, fatty, uh, processed foods, a lot of that has to be has to do with the advertising, the messaging, the ways they present these things um, to us. So if you really were a lay person saying intuitive eating, you'd be you'd say, oh, well, my intuition told me to eat this. Um, my intuition told me to choose this food or whatever. So what I want to say is, hey, a lot of this intuition that happens these is happening when we're children. So for example, you go to a fun game um, or you watch a movie with your parents or um, you have a great experience with your family and they always used to eat those same foods during that time to celebrate or to commemorate the occasion. And now when you want to celebrate or you want to relax or you want that same feeling of comfort, you seek out those foods. And so unlearned eating means realize that some of that was learned behaviors. Your body just wants, your brain pathways just want easy ways to comfort you, easy ways to boost your mood, easy ways to, and when you have those old patterns, it's really hard to break them until you say to yourself, oh, you know what, this is not healthy that I pick up this unhealthy thing every single time. I want to celebrate because that's what my parents did for many years. So unlearned eating means 
recognizing these negative patterns. Some of them may be positive, like, you know, maybe you had broccoli every time, you know, you were home and that's great, but some of them are negative and you want to unlearn those patterns. And so I talk about certain techniques to retrain your cravings. Retrain is one of your five steps to freedom from hunger and cravings. And I'm going to move on very shortly to audience questions because we have um, always such brilliant questions from the audience and I want to make sure we get through as many as possible. But just because I think it's a really important and interesting part of that, all of it's interesting, but your five steps, replenish, rewire, reset, refresh, retrain. Um, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the refresh part and the great importance of sleep. And we've, we, you know, your, your book is a lot about what we should eat, but ultimately yeah. it goes out the window if we don't really pay attention to how long, how deeply and how well we sleep in order of, to regulate hormones and, and those cravings and our weight and everything to do with our health, really. So, you know, when we go to sleep, when we sleep, we actually activate um, lots of hormones in our brain. And sometimes if you haven't had a good night of sleep, you'll wonder, why am I craving so many unhealthy foods? And why do I not feel satisfied? It's not just in your head. It's actually true that um, in studies, they've shown that your ghrelin levels, which is your hunger hormone, are much higher when you don't get a good night's sleep. And your leptin, your satiation hormone, the one that makes you feel satisfied, is much lower when you haven't gotten a good night of sleep. So what you end up doing is you're really shortchanging your hormones so that now you are craving things that you wouldn't be normally. You're not as satiated and you seem to be hungry all the time. And so sleep is not only great for your brain, but great for your hormones so that they can be regulated throughout the day. And you actually have, we can't go into them, but you do have... Everyone has their advice about how to, how to sleep. Um, I've I've been lucky enough to read sort of some some very good advice, but I think you have a really good and quite simple technique that people can use when they're lying in bed. And I wonder if you could go through that, and then I will move on to audience questions, albeit a bit reluctantly because there's so much more to ask you. Yeah, this is um, I, and sleep is such a difficult thing in today's world because we live in a place where we're getting a lot of blue light, like bright lights in the evenings. It's confusing to our brain. And then we don't get enough sunlight during the day. So our bodies are quite confused. So what I recommend is that when you are going to sleep, first of all, sleep hygiene is huge. So make it cold in your room, make it dark in your room, make it quiet in your room, stop all of the devices and working at least two hours before bed, stop eating three hours before bed. And then when you are lying in bed, the technique that I teach is to take you out of your forebrain, the thinking brain, the one that's thinking about all the things you forgot to do today, all the things you have to do tomorrow, You know, I don't know about you, but when I lie down into bed, the first thing I think about is, oh gosh, I got to do this tomorrow. I have to do this, or I forgot to do this um, or this. And so what you want to do is you want to take yourself out of your forebrain, out of your thinking, your to-do list brain, and back into the imaginative brain or the uh, visual creative brain. 
And the whole point of this exercise that I teach is to relax your body and to put it into a state where you're able to go into the creative or visualization state um, so that you are not thinking about, hey, what do I need to do tomorrow morning? Thank you. And people can read in the book about about it. I was practicing it when I shouldn't be going to sleep and I could tell that it would be very helpful, very, very (laughs) efficient. So I'm going to read a question from Ramika, which is very specific to her, but I think um, that it will be something that a lot of people relate to parts of it and would love your advice on. So she says, I've recently been struggling by giving into my cravings. I've been able to resist before, but at the moment, uh, the voice in my head seems to have more weight than my self-control. I work with cardiologists every day and can see the impact. And I also have PCOS. I know I can be borderline diabetic. I've increased the variety of my food, something you advocate, um, and really step working up my working out, but struggle with cravings. And, and I'm sure many people want to know, how can I change my mindset? And what alternatives can you suggest to satisfy my sweet tooth and curb these cravings? Yeah, I love this. So there's many things you can do. So number one is, you know, we say it only takes three days to start changing your microbiome. And guess what? Those bacteria control our cravings. And so if you really try to eat very healthy, so you know how they say um, the saying that motivation actually follows action? Well, I truly believe that when it comes to changing your gut health, because you change your you make the action steps to change your diet. And then all of a sudden, your new gut bacteria start to crave the right things. And so your motivation starts to kick in. So not so maybe you white knuckled it and really tried hard for three days to eat healthy um, and low sugar and, um, you know, low on the treats. But after day three, you'll start to say, oh, wow, I'm craving the healthy foods. I'm craving the apple instead of the uh, junk food. I'm craving, um, you know, something healthy. So that's number one is changing your gut bacteria in as little as three days. And number two is really understanding that are you craving that sweet or are you craving that feeling of the dopamine? Because most of us are chasing dopamine. We want to feel good. And that's why we look at social media. That's why we gamble. That's why we drink alcohol. Maybe there are certain good things that you could do to help you release dopamine in a way that's healthy rather than unhealthy. Exercise, uh, sunlight, uh, more sleep. There are foods you can eat to raise your dopamine levels. There are other ways to release dopamine like massage or sauna, you know, there's dancing, laughing. There are so many different ways to release dopamine. Sometimes we're just stuck in the easiest way, um, which is, you know, eating a, a, a sweet. But there's other ways you can satisfy your dopamine cravings that don't have anything to do with unhealthy foods. Really useful. Thank you. Polly has a question about probiotics. We've sort of covered this, I I think, but you might have other ways to say. She said, I've heard recently from probiotic supplement companies that natural probiotics and kombucha and sauerkraut, for example, are mostly destroyed by our stomach acid and don't reach or benefit our gut that well. Is this true? And how do we ensure our guts are getting the love they need, which is something we've talked about? But is that true? Well, if you think about it, um, actually probiotic pills 
are more likely to get destroyed on the way to the gut. Because if you think about it, when you swallow a bunch of bacteria, it's our immune system's job to try to kill that bacteria because they don't want you to swallow a bunch of bacteria um, that have no purpose. Uh, they need to enter your body in a matrix. And so what all the supplement companies are trying to figure out is what is this matrix that they can kind of incorporate the bacteria in so that it will make it to the lower colon, which is where the, you know, the crux of all of this happens. And there is no better way to get it than fermented food, actual sauerkraut, you know, kimchi, miso. That's the matrix that we need. And like I said, the big, big conundrum that the drug companies have is like, how do we recreate this matrix so that our gut bacteria don't get killed on the way down? Um, and so that's that's how I it's always food first. It's really, really helpful to know that. Really interesting. I think many, many people will be really fascinated to know. What's your opinion? And I'm glad um, um, this is asked on cyclical eating based on a hormonal cycle. I think women often ignore their infradian rhythm, which is their 30, 28 day cycle that uh, most women of childbearing age have. So meaning that, you know, women, it's not like you're different people, but you're essentially have different needs at different times of the month. So right before your period, the week before your period, we call that in medical terms, the late luteal phase. During the late luteal phase, your body is, is just more sensitive to stress and less resilient, meaning that this is the time that you want to give your body nourishing foods. You want to give them more sunlight, more sleep, more rest, and not do the hard training or the um, longer intermittent fast or the very stressful activities and eating in a way that nourishes your body. And then, um, you know, usually after day two or three of your period, your hormones rise again, and you get that estrogen and testosterone and progesterone boost to help you eat and train like an athlete. This is a time where you can push your body. Um, you can also digest and metabolize foods in a much better way. And so think that when women learn how to manage their hormones through foods and activities, you can feel much more energized and in control. Really interesting. What, what, what about in terms of in, in terms of sort of uh, eating to stress, basically? So a lot of a lot of reasons um, for people to reach for their craving or to eat unhealthily is because they are incredibly stressed, and when you're stressed. You don't have time to think, and you and you certainly want certain things. I wonder yes. what your advice is. Somebody was asking about how to regulate your food cravings and how to minimize your stress stressful cravings. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, stress is our biggest problem in the modern world. You know, we we know that certain activities like you know, being on the computer or um, not getting enough exercise or not getting enough sleep or having stressful um, emotional relationships are all things that will affect your hunger, your cravings, your mood um, overall. So the biggest thing I think of when it comes to stress is that realizing that sometimes when you reach for the food or the alcoholic drink or the snack, 
you're actually looking for stress relief. And again, there are other ways to relieve stress that are more productive for you than eating, you know, that piece of cake, for example. Uh, the way I think about it is like, eat the cake if you really want it, but don't eat the cake because you need to soothe yourself. And if you need to soothe yourself, try to figure out one, why you need that soothing. And two, what else can you be doing to help you soothe um, rather than um, eating that thing? Like one of the best tricks I have is to drink a hot liquid, like a tea or a coffee, something that is very soothing to our brain and body, but doesn't necessarily contain all the negative things that a processed food would. A um, really good question from someone which you talk about in the book about the order of which in which you can, can eat. So would you advise to eat vegetables first, then protein, then carbs to regulate the sugar levels? Or um, is this not important? Very important. The order of foods is an extremely good way as a hack kind of to help you through when you're trying to figure out, okay, what are easy things I can do in my life Um to help me regulate my hunger, my cravings, and my inflammation levels. This is one of the best tricks, meaning that when you go to a restaurant, you get the bread first, you know, and what you do is you eat the bread and your body is expecting a lot of food. And so it starts to release all of these um, secondary hormones to anticipate food, making you hungrier, making you want to eat more in that moment. And it raises your blood sugar because it's very low in fiber. Um, if you just switch this around and have a soup, a salad, the protein, and then have your bread or dessert at the end so that the carbohydrates comes at the end, you're much more likely to not only regulate your blood sugar, but regulate your cravings throughout the day. What about intermittent fasting? You talk about that in the book. You talk about your own um, decision to eat um, between only certain hours. Do you advocate that for everyone? I think everyone should be doing some form of time-restricted eating, which is the more proper form. Time-restricted eating just means that you're eating all of your food within the window of time um, specified. So I usually like to use a typical window of time where you stop eating two to three hours before bed. Because generally, if you think about it, thousands of years ago, you know, we didn't have refrigerators and microwaves and takeaway and all those options to eat big meals late at night. Mostly you ate dinner. Even if you think about your grandparents, for most of us, you know, you ate dinner and maybe you had a small snack, but you weren't really eating a lot, you know, after dinner. And so, and interestingly, our body works best that way. When melatonin is secreted two to three hours before bed, it's actually telling our organs to turn down their ability to metabolize because it wants to say, Right now, you're not going to get a lot of food. So concentrate on repair and renewal and less on metabolism. So what happens is if you then go and eat a huge meal and give your body a big load of food to digest and to metabolize, it's going to be impaired in its um, way. And that's why you see a lot of people having weight gain but also GI issues like heartburn and indigestion when they eat late at night. What about if you get 
very hungry later in the day for example you're not hungry during these hours when you should be hungry for example and you find that your hunger really peaks at around in the evening time is it better to eat when you're very hungry or to just stick to what you're told and and not eat sort of later in the day uh that's a good question um, you can change your hunger hormone patterns by 30 minutes a day. So for example, we are cyclical in our hunger patterns. This is very evident when you travel somewhere, right? With a different time zone, you're hungry at the weirdest time because your hunger hormones work on a cyclical pattern also, and it matches your home time zone. And so you are able to switch that. As you know, when you go to a new place after a few days, your hunger patterns kind of normalize and you start getting hungry at the times of the new destination. So same way you can retrain your body to be hungry at the right times of day. So if you start to say to your body, like, I'm not really going to eat too much in the evenings. After a few days, your body gets used to it and your hunger levels really come down. And so um, you can train it to say, okay, I'm going to move up my dinner by 30 minutes every day until I've got, got it to the place where I want it to be. So is eating sort of, you know, creeping down to the kitchen in the evenings, late at night, is that a big fat cross over that? We shouldn't be doing that. It's a, it's, it's not something where, you know, you want to say, I can't eat anything and I can't put anything in my mouth, but think about it physiologically, your body is in its sleep mode and you want to be doing your biggest meals, your most number of calories during the daylight hours. If I equate it to, I tell people this kind of analogy You know, if someone woke you up in the middle of the night and asked you to do a complicated math problem, you would not only struggle, but you would be really tired in the morning um, and angry because you had to wake up and do this um, complicated. That's the same thing as our metabolism. Like our metabolism is not meant to ingest large amounts of food and metabolize and store it. And when you ask your body to do that, you're going to have consequences. Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, A a question that's really interesting to me, because you've talked about how many benefits eating a lot of protein has, really so many benefits, and we've we've been through a lot of them. Um, Somebody asks then, what do you think of the keto diet, which is, of course, heavily weighted towards protein, isn't it, Um, which is very fashionable now? I mean, I know you don't approve of diets, so I wonder what's your answer to that question. I I think... The same way I answered the question about plant-based diets is the same way I would answer the question about keto. I think it can be done very healthfully with lots of fiber, vegetables, and um, probiotic foods, or it can be done in an extremely unhealthy way. For example, I know people who eat cheese with bacon in the morning, you know, and it's considered keto. That's but that's not healthy. Um, and then they'll have, you know, a fast food burger without the bun and, you know, with cheese, that's not healthy, but that's keto. So it can be very difficult because we are given all this messaging about this diet and that diet, but in every one of those diets, we're missing the boat on, you know, the foods that our gut bacteria really need to regulate our hunger hormones so that we can stay on something that's sustainable, um, not only 
from the diet standpoint so that we can be healthy, but also so that we can be happy and more even in our mood. I think it's really interesting what you say there. I think a lot of diets give people this excuse to just go wholeheartedly in one direction. So, for example, with plant-based, then people drink a lot of plant-based milks, which are full of awful things. And you, you yeah. probably be a lot better off drinking sort of organic whole milk, dairy milk. So I think it's just about not being slave slavish to one thing and therefore forgetting what's important. Absolutely. Diet culture has really tricked us into thinking that there's one answer, Mm. um, and that's why there's so many fights. But really, the answer is, if you feed your gut bacteria, they will be happy, and they will produce chemicals to make you um, happier and choose healthier foods. And so then it becomes less of a diet. It becomes more of a um, strategy to say, hey, let's just do things that are going to help that gut brain connection, because that in turn will help us uh, crave the right foods, will help us feel happy, will help us differentiate between um, hunger and cravings. So that's why I concentrate on that. So there's so much more to ask you. Tell us before we let you go reluctantly, where can people find much more apart from in the book? I think on your website. Yes, you can go to amymdwellness.com, A-M-Y-M-D wellness.com. And if you do amymdwellness.com forward slash book, you can get a free chapter and some bonuses uh, that I only offer on there. Okay. And there are so many brilliant, wonderful, delicious recipes at the end of the book as well, and um, kind of meal plans and so much more in there that we, of course, don't have the time to discuss in an hour. But I think people can get the sense that it is incredibly useful information and empowering, really, because a lot of the time we feel so despairing. There's so much out there. It's so hard to figure out what's what. And it's really fascinating hearing from you with with your knowledge and and enthusiasm as I said at the start so thank you very much to everyone for signing in lots of you brilliant questions as ever and uh, Amy thank you very much indeed thank you so much for having me this episode starred Dr Amy Shah and was presented by Hannah McInnes it was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and the show is made by me and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong our editor is John Doughty There are loads more health, well-being and psychology-themed episodes of this show in your feed. And even more are available for free to subscribers of HowTo Plus, our membership programme. You can find out more about that on our website and use the code POD50 for a permanent half-price discount. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com